My name's Claire Press, and I'm Vogue Australia's sustainability editor. You're listening to Wardrobe Crisis, the podcast that unzips fashion's issues. Do you mind if I move the microphone? I just, I need to lounge. <laughs> Devotion, darling. Shut up. I think as humans, we are major forces to be also reckoned with. And I think creativity always flourishes when there is any type of crisis. That's been the absolute pleasure of is watching talented people who have skills far and beyond mine come together and work collectively. Einstein always said, nature has all the answers. Just look to nature, it has all the answers. Just because I happen to be able to source them easiest, I guess, I was buying original wool jackets from the 1950s. I was buying them at Portobello Market. And a one man's rubbish is another man's gold. For me, it was about age. It was about the attitude of people. And it's about how they're wearing the clothes, why they're wearing the clothes, and capturing a bit of their wisdom and empowering people to look at aging differently. Join me every week as we talk ethics, sustainability, and the business and madness of fashion. From who made your clothes to how they impact on the environment to the politics of personal style, we are so hot right now. <laughs> Hello again. How are you doing? I love this week's interview. It's very, very interesting. You're going to hear from the intrepid polar explorer, Tim Jarvis, and it's full of colourful tales about what it's like to climb mountains and trek glaciers in the freezing ice and snow today, but also in the past, because part of what Tim does or has done is to retrace the steps of famous explorers. And I'll let him, I'll leave it to him to tell you all about the details of this, but essentially he really went to town on copying the conditions, I guess, that would have been faced by famous explorers, the likes of Ernest Shackleton, a century ago, and right down to the starvation starvation rations and the hobnail boots. I mean, they really didn't have the kit back then. But this is also a story about climate change. And Tim is a passionate advocate for action on climate. Obviously, being out there, he's witnessing the change on some of these pristine wild places that are starting to melt. So in 1992, at the time of the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, there were 25 mountains at zero latitude that had glaciers. And zero latitude means along the equator. So you've probably heard of Kilimanjaro in Tanzania. Or there's three, I think, in Uganda. There's one in Kenya. There's a bunch in Colombia. But glaciers have existed along the equator for hundreds of thousands of years, except, Tim warns, most of them will be completely melted away within 25 years. Enter Tim's project. It's called 25-0, and it's currently being made into a documentary. There's a lot to take in in this one, but buckle up for a crazy adventurous ride with a very, very serious message. Ready? Let's go. Tim, I'm very excited that you're here doing this today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You've only come from Adelaide, but had you come from overseas and you went through passport control, what would you write under occupation? You know, I'm a little bit challenged by that. Uh, To say futurist or explorer or adventurer or whatever sounds a bit pretentious. It sounds awesome. Come on. 
adventurer. It's not a bad thing to say. It's not a bad thing to say. I would. I guess I would have to say that. I hide behind scientists. Excellent. Well, I'm not a very good one. Tim, I heard you speak at the Australian Geographic Awards last year, and it was fascinating, but it was also a little bit frightening because as a polar explorer, your stories really bring home the story of global warming in a very impactful way. Can you begin by just telling us what you've seen on your adventures and on your travels through the South Pole and the High Arctic? I've seen lots of things during the course of my travels. And the thing about the Arctic and the Antarctic is they're the inverse of one another. So Antarctic is a high landmass surrounded by ocean and the Arctic is an ocean surrounded by land. The Arctic, the change is very, very easy to see because essentially if you want to try and get to the North Pole, you've got to walk across what should in theory be frozen ocean even in the summer, except now it's not. And we will have ice-free Arctic Ocean by the mid to late 2030s altogether. And that's a big thermostat for the planet because at the moment what ice there is that remains bounces back a lot of incoming solar radiation into space. Earth's albedo. Did we say exactly. albedo? Albedo value, yeah. High so albedo, the way it ref- the ice reflects the heat About back. 80%, 80% back out. Once it's gone, that heat is absorbed by the ocean, which is essentially dark, and then gives rise to a situation where, where the ocean's warmer and there's less likelihood of ice forming, which means more heat gets absorbed, which means less ice forms, which means more heat gets absorbed. It's a positive feedback loop, and that's a big problem. Really big problem. What sort of sea level rises might we be looking at, for example, by the end of the century, if we carry on regardless, if we carry on as business as usual? Interestingly, nothing from the Arctic Ocean, because that ice is already floating in the sea, so it displaces its equivalent volume anyway. It's like having an ice cube an in ice your gin and tonic. Glass, yeah, right. yeah, and so when it melts, it actually doesn't make any difference to the level because it's already displacing. So it's more the loss of it, that reflectivity from the ice. That's what we're worried about is the reflectivity. However, in the north, up in the Arctic, you do have big ice caps like Greenland, and that one is melting out of sight, and that is already contributing about a millimetre a year to sea level rise, which doesn't sound like much. And when you combine that with the millimetre that the Antarctic is also contributing, and the additional millimetre that is coming from what they call thermal expansion, so the ocean expanding because something warmer takes up more space, you've got about three mils a year, year on year on year on year, and you know every three years you've got a centimetre, and you know it's, it's a tremendous amount of uh, rise that's going on. Because we're so far away from these areas, or most of us are, if they're not with you on a trek, it can be hard to visualise and imagine what this means and what it looks like. I know that the polar bear is this image that we always latch onto that becomes something of a cliche. But if you've seen the footage, listeners, and I will share a link to it, of who was it shot by? The image of a polar bear who's dragging himself Paul along Paul Nicklin, I think it was Paul Nicklin, yeah. Um, I mean, it's very... The reason why it's become cliched is because the polar bear is almost the poster child for the story of this melt. But if you see this footage, it's harrowing, isn't it? I mean, It's harrowing. It's a starving polar bear unable to get enough food to eat and essentially because polar bears hunt on the ice they don't hunt on the land they hunt on tend to hunt on sea ice and if there isn't any sea ice then where do they hunt and it's a very simple equation it's very similar to penguins down in the antarctic penguins eat krill the little microscopic or very small anyway crustaceans and those crustaceans eat algae and algae lives on the underside of sea ice so less sea ice means less algae means less krill means less penguins so it's a very simple relationship sadly though you know for someone living in melbourne or dakar or singapore or london they don't see polar bears very often so whether or not they're there 
people would never never mm. never know one of the images that it's impossible to escape though i think was last july or june when we saw that giant piece of ice shelf break off it's called larsen sea i had to look it up i don't yeah. know but it was an enormous enormous chunk it was an epic thing to see this thing break away can you talk to us a bit about what that was well, yeah, you know, look, ice is breaking off Antarctica all the time as a result of warming. Um, an ice shelf is just really like a very large glacier, the tongue of which sticks out into the ocean and floats on the surface of the sea. And when it breaks away, obviously, you end up in a situation where the ice is surrounded by water and it melts and contributes to sea level rise, basically. The largest iceberg to break off Antarctica was 197 kilometres long by about 30 wide and about a thousand meters thick these are huge a thousand pieces. meters thick. yeah these are th- very very large pieces of real estate not quite the size of belgium as these things are always meant to be but about 15 times the size of singapore to give people a, an idea you know the antarctic is twice the size of australia and covered in an average thickness of 2,000 meters of ice two kilometers i didn't realize thickness. it was so deep yeah 28 million cubic kilometers of ice and 97% of the world's water is in the ocean. Of the remaining 3%, 2% is actually in the Antarctic ice cap. If it all melted, we'd have 70 metres of sea level rise, in which case, you know, London and Shanghai and Dakar and Mumbai and Singapore and every city in Australia would all be submerged. Now, 70 is not going to happen, but you don't need 70. You only need 50 centimetres for it to be catastrophic. We've done this thing now where we started to talk about figures. And I know that for some people, those figures become impossible to envisage. When you say, that's why we like to say about the size of Belgium, because it becomes something more clearly imaginable for those of us who haven't perhaps got a scientific or a mathematical background or brain like me. This is why it's such an amazing thing to be able to talk to you, Tim, because you've been many times, you've seen, you've felt what it's like to be out there in these remote places, and that's what I want to know. Tell me a story. I've got so many questions I want to ask you about some of the intrepid and crazy things that you've done, but why don't we speak about, not the ice caps, but about 25-0, which is some the way that I found out about you, because you made these films which you beamed back to Paris, to COP21, saying, this is what I'm seeing on some of these glaciers that are equatorial glaciers. Yeah. Describe that. Where are you? What are you doing? Well... The difficulty with the polar regions is the scale is so big you can't just easily point to a bit of climate change because everything is white down there. And so if you point to ice which is, you know, 100 metres thinner than it used to be, if there's still ice there, it's still ice. And, you know, you're looking at the surface of it, you can't really tell. So the scale is too big to easily show it. But there is a place where changes in the amount of ice cover are really easy to see. And that's in the equatorial regions where at the equator you have 25 mountains that had a glacier in 1992 so when the when the world started taking climate change seriously in 92 the first big conference about it the first big agreement 25 mountains at the equator had a glacier name Um, one the mountains are more well known to people Uh, Kilimanjaro Kilimanjaro Kilimanjaro, Cotopaxi in Ecuador Chimborazo in Ecuador Karsten's Pyramid here in Asia-Pacific region. There's only one in Asia-Pacific region. That's in Papua. So the Indonesian side of PNG. So you go up there? I go up there. I climb them. I collaborate with glacial scientists, glaciologists, who back up what I see anecdotally with the science. I mean, I can understand the science myself, but 
I'm not reinventing their science. I'm citing their peer-reviewed science, telling me what's happening. And then I bring back images and stories of people being impacted and they're and very in, visually powerful. In some cases, literally eyes melting drop by drop. Melting drop by drop. I, I beamed in from the summit of the largest ice cap in Africa, which is in the mountains of the moon, the Ruanzori between Congo and Uganda, on day six of the climate change talks in Paris. And I was there with support from Kathmandu and in my capacity as an ambassador for WWF. And so they all helped me get as much coverage as possible. And we got some government agencies to sponsor us, which doesn't mean money, but it means they give you um, an opportunity to speak to the governments attending COP. And we beamed in a message saying what we expected to see or hoped to see out of the climate talks in Paris in December 2015. Tell us a story about some of the impacts on people that you saw through that project? Well, some of the impacts on people are very pronounced. I mean, take Mount Kenya, which is one of the other mountains in Africa. There's Kilimanjaro, Mount Kenya, and three mountains in the Ruanzori Mountains. Mount Kenya supports about a million people in the northern part of Kenya, with melting from the glaciers of Mount Kenya, which happens seasonally, and that's always happened very seasonally. So this is rivers and water supplies? Yeah, and they the glaciers melt gradually, and they're replenished with snows that fall subsequently in the, in the wetter seasons. And they act as a kind of big sponge and they hold the water in the system and they release gradually and people drink the water that comes off the glaciers in the form of melting rivers many kilometres away. What's happening now is that the glaciers are just melting out of sight very, very quickly such that soon there won't be anything left and there won't be any livelihood for those people. There's nothing to store the water. Uh, They're like a reservoir, if you like, and uh, they're going very, very fast. So a lot of drought in that part of Kenya and that's a big problem. In uh, other areas like the Ruanzori, we're, we're experiencing things like malaria because, of course, uh, with because the Because it gets warmer and the mosquitoes rise. Warming the people in the Ruanzori mountains who've had no history of malaria in the past are now suddenly experiencing cases of malaria at high altitudes where you never got those mosquitoes before. So there are all sorts of unintended consequences. Before we all cry, could happen, we will get onto some of the more adventuresome and upbeat aspects of what you do Tim but listening to you speak there I keep thinking because I've been doing lots of research into climate change and into the science which some of it has been very new to me but also trying to look at the world through a different lens I've been getting quite sad about it Mm. and trying to then tell positive stories to try to you know kick myself into being active I suppose and not hopeless but how do you suffer or do you suffer from and how do you deal with this thing climate grief and seeing some of this stuff which is pretty bleak look it is bleak i mean that it, that's what spurred me on i mean my my whole career in the environment field if you want to call it that started with the love of the outdoors and then as soon as you go to remote places and you see just how far humans reach goes whether it's climate change or biodiversity loss or plastic pollution in the ocean then you feel compelled to try and do something i would say um the positives around the climate piece are countries like China, you wouldn't expect it, but they have big problems with air pollution in their cities. And a lot of people in China regard air pollution as kind of being synonymous with climate change. They don't really think it through. And for the Chinese authorities, it's a big embarrassment to have such an air pollution problem. And so in solving that problem, ironically, they're helping to do something about climate change because it's the particulates from coal burning that cause the air quality problems and also contribute to climate change. So they're doing something. But how do you go with trying to not feel depressed by it? Are you, for instance, does it have a different effect where it galvanises you and makes you think I'll do something more then? I think the day you decide to give up 
obviously it's it's all over. I mean, there's no one else that's going to solve this problem apart from us. And when an individual says, you know, the problem is too big, it's too overwhelming, what can I do? I always remember that Anita Roddick line where she said, you know, if you think being small can't make a difference, try going to bed with a mosquito in the room. <laughs> I've never said, heard that before. And, which I thought was really good. And, and you know, every individual just has to step up and make some changes in their life, whether it's, you know, the amount of clothes they buy or where they invest their superannuation, whether it's in a company that doesn't buy into fossil fuels or whether it's cycling and walking to work or taking public transport or putting solar on your roof or there's any number of things that an individual can do where they have the opportunity to to make their contribution not everyone's going to do what you do though are they because <laughs> actually no. crazy town come on i mean yeah. in 2006 you recreated a trip that was taken by this british explorer mawson australian in- know about explorers whatever well i do though yeah. i know the story of mawson because i've looked at what you did yeah yeah that's true he did a mawson so did, he was an australian he was yeah he was born in the uk actually originally yeah born, well, born in picking. yorkshire he's born in yorkshire i'm from yorkshire obviously we're not right? similar i would yeah. never do what he did i thought i recognized characteristics <laughs> but he did something crazy he took part in an expedition in 1913 where both of his colleagues died basically and the first one died because he fell in a crevasse and he went down the crevasse with the dog with team the tent. pulling the tent, the bottom of the tent and most of the food and everything yeah and so that left Mawson and the surviving guy with 20% of the food they needed to survive and the problem was they were 520 kilometers from their hut and they weren't going to make it and 45 they, days they turned and headed for home halfway home second man died in Mawson's arms and Mawson was the sole survivor and he fell through the door of the hut emaciated and you name it, lost between a third and 40% of his body weight. You know, it's huge. And ever since that original, people had said maybe he needed to commit the ultimate sin and cannibalise the second fallen man. So that actually wasn't my driver for doing the trip, but it kind of became that. It got a little to bit hijacked. He could have done it without It got a little bit hijacked by the media who said, you know, can he do it without eating his colleague? In my case, a nervous Russian. And um, look, it can be done. But well, you did it. Uh, yeah, but it's but, you know, not, the media, not fun. The media jumps on the story of, did he eat his friend in order to get through it? The thing that got me going, of course, was this idea of you trying to recreate as ethically as possible, as you say, the journey down to using the same kit. And to me, I just found this absolutely fascinating because I'm obsessed with clothes and less obsessed with performance clothes, more obsessed with fashion, but very interested in this idea of how clothes can be armour, they can be practical, they can be essential. You did this crazy trip wearing ostensibly what he would have worn in 1913. You went to Burberry, is that right? That's right. And what were you wearing? Well, I mean, we wore what they would call back in the heroic era of polar exploration 100 years ago, Burberries. So these are just gabardine. So basically cotton, twice the thickness of a work shirt, basically, with a little bit of waterproofing in it. Not as waxed as a dry as a bone or a, something like that, or a barber jacket, but a little bit of waxing to it. But really clothing designed more to be breathable and windproof than waterproof because Antarctica is the driest, windiest continent in the world. And um, the journey that Mawson ended up undertaking, he got very wet. He had a lot of really varying temperatures. Sometimes he was actually hot pulling his sled. Is he wearing a lot of jumpers underneath? He wears jumpers. He wears jumpers for thermal layers. They wear animal skins for the extremities, you know, for gloves. And, and they have these things, mucklucks, which they put on the feet. And What's that then? It's like a reindeer skin 
thing and reindeer skin sleeping bags and that sort of stuff. And you had your own reindeer sleeping bags made and sewn and... I did, yeah. Look, I mean, I don't want to harm animals. I'm, I'm not a vegetarian, but I'm close to it, um, which may sound a bit weak, but I try not to eat much meat if I can, I can avoid it for environmental reasons as much as moral ones. Or um, just because you had to survive off the kangaroo jerky and some lard for yes, 45 days. Yeah, kangaroo jerky and lard. Yeah, the lard is uh, interesting to try and survive on. I mean, it's basically congealed blocks of, of white artery congesting I'm from Yorkshire. Fat, we know what lard is. Yeah, yeah. We cook dripping, our black dripping, pudding dripping, in it. Dripping. <laughs> yeah, but you don't eat blocks of it. You know, just, so just hang on a minute. Well, you, when we talk about survival rations, which is what Mawson yeah. had to survive on, yeah. tell us what that looked like. Well, I mean, he had 2,100 calories, so that's about a third of what you need for Most polar. of it from lard. Most of it from lard. He would eat a, a boiled sweet, a little bit of sugar in, in tea, no milk. He'd have his lard. He'd have a bit of dog meat because they were forced to consume their dogs. We ate kangaroo jerky instead. And then a little bit of sledging biscuit, which is like a whey-rich biscuit. And that was about it. And, you know, I would have finished my food by about 10 in the morning, and I had to wait till the next day for anything else. And the thing is, you're pulling a sled in minus 20 degrees. In hobnail boots? In hobnail boots, heavy sled, trying to avoid crevasses and some dark moments on the trip. And the clothing isn't really up to the job, honestly. Yeah. Um, as great as Burberry clothes are in the modern era, for that kind of expedition when you're on a starvation ration... They're not enough to keep you warm with the thermal layers you've got on. But also, did you or did you not, because I think I know you did, sleep in the tent without the floor? Yeah, because, I mean, Mawson lost his tent on the original when the first guy fell in the crevasse, down went the tent, down went most of the food with the dog team and everything. So he was left with an old cover and he put it over a frame made out of some skis and a couple of sled runners, off cuts. And he made a kind of pyramid frame and chucked the cover over the top and weighed down the edges with snow, which meant he slept on the snow inside in his reindeer skin sleeping bag. And, of course, his body heat escaped and melted the snow beneath him, meaning he ended up wet a lot of the time, wet and cold. But when he got out of the sleeping bag and rolled it up and stuck it on the sled, of course, it froze solid and he had to then melt it to get back in, at which point the cycle repeated itself. He then was in his a wet, cold sleeping bag as opposed to one that's frozen stiff. The guy who played, because he did play, because he obviously didn't actually die, he just figuratively died by being removed yeah. from the scene. Yeah. So the guy who played your colleague in yeah. this, not a game, in this intrepid adventure, which makes me just, I can't even, was he very glad, what was his name? John Stukelow, his name is. Was uh, John stoked to be departing after 25 yes, days? Yes, he was. He's a fantastic guy, Russian, hard as nails, uh, very good mountaineer. Very pleased to have played his part in things and got out of there alive. And we were both pleased. You know, the idea of eating him didn't appeal to me, <laughs> didn't appeal to him. So it was, it was good news all round. But Tim, I feel that listeners may well be at this point thinking, why? I mean, it's so difficult. Talk about making your life hard. What drives you? I mean, I can see why it's a wonderful thing to do. But what, what drives you? to keep going and then I mean this is not just a one-off this is your life this is what you do you did it again in 2016 or a similar thing Mm. you've kayaked across lakes you've walked across deserts alone you continue to take yourselves to extremes physically what is it that drives you and what keeps you doing it 
You know, I think it's how you frame that question. I think life, I like to live on the edge of my ability and it's at that place that you discover new things about yourself and you discover new things about life and I think that spirit of adventure is within all of us and it just manifests in lots of different ways, you know. Does it feed itself? It does. I mean, I think once you start to become aware of that other side of your personality, the real version of you that lives somewhere beneath the surface, then you just want to keep on accessing it. And in order to do that, you've got to keep going back to reacquaint yourself. The only way you can do that is to put yourself in similar situations where that more resourceful version of you seems to emerge. It doesn't necessarily emerge standing in the, you know, the checkout queue and at the airport, you know, and things like that. But if you put yourself in these wonderful life-changing situations when you're out in nature and there's no human noise around it's just you and whatever you bring with you it is amazing what you discover and uh, you have a much more honest relationship with this place you know you don't need to see it through the lens of how society tells you you have to be or you know you just you just experience it I don't really know how to express it but I I know that I enjoy going back and re-experiencing it and as I say, the way I tend to frame it is the bigger danger would be just living a, in inverted commas, normal life where you didn't do that kind of stuff. And that would be the bigger fear for me getting to the end of my time and thinking, what a waste. Why didn't I take the opportunity to do it? Fascinating. How does it affect your relationship with nature, this idea of shedding all of the noise and the almost sort of fakely constructed stuff that's all around us every day? I don't just mean the physical stuff, but the society stuff how does that recalibrate your relationship with nature well you feel like you're very much at home I mean I'm um, you know I spend a lot of time in the outdoors sometimes on my own sometimes with others and you just you feel very comfortable in that environment and um, as I say I mean I think the thing about humans is we're so adaptable we can put ourselves in just about any situation and make it work the question is finding something that really makes your heart sing and really makes you all that you can be you know really the sum of your parts rather than just playing a particular role somewhere in society doing a job that you're kind of okay with in a life that you're kind of okay with and um, I don't mean to be patronizing in any way shape or form because I mean a lot of the time I have to pay bills to make the ends meet and that kind of thing but the more time you can spend out there having real real life-changing experiences the better as far as I'm concerned. You mentioned what makes your heart sing and I was thinking before how does it can you describe to me how it opens up your senses? Because I was thinking about what you hear. You know, because living in a city, there's so much distraction and noise. And even to go for a bushwalk changes what you hear. What's it like when you're on a mountain? And how do your senses open up? Well, you know, you live to a very different rhythm. Uh, you know, the, the rhythm of day and night defines what you do. Actually, interestingly, not in the Antarctic, because you have 24-hour light. And, you know, you find yourself sleeping on glaciers and you can as you're lying there you can hear the creak and the movement of this and you think wow you know the whole continent's really moving from the high point in the middle out towards the edges that's what happens in the Antarctic loosely speaking and you can just feel and hear everything and there's no sign of any humanity out there I didn't see a vapor trail in the sky um, from an aircraft let alone any other human infrastructure in 47 days going to the South Pole in 99 nothing and um you know, anything could have happened in the rest of the world. And you're trying to get to a point called the South Pole, which is just where all the lines of longitude, the verticals on the map, they all they all go to a single point. So all the time zones are the same and everything just goes to a single point and you're just 
trying to reach the bottom of the earth and you become very conscious of the fact that you're just a person walking across a vast icy expanse on your own on a planet that's spinning every 24 hours on its axis going around a medium-sized star somewhere on the arm of a moderately sized galaxy and it's kind of a nice experience it (laughs) just puts everything into some kind of perspective you're a scientist how spiritual are you I think I'm probably um, too spiritual to be a good scientist because I like to look for meaning behind things and I don't know that scientists necessarily try and look for meaning I think they just try and look for evidence and I think it's different I think there is a point where there's crossover where now we have to imagine things to be able to try and test them scientifically you know we can't just edge forward our understanding of science of the universe by just doing lots of little experiments and chipping away and chipping away we have to imagine whole new dimensions and reasons for space to be expanding at the rate that it's expanding for example we don't have any kind of laws that govern that kind of stuff we have to just try and understand why things are moving away at a particular pace the redshift you know the Everything's going apart. Why? There's no energy in the system that we know of that could make that happen. We have to imagine that and then try and test afterwards. Mm. So there is a a real role in science now for imagination. Talking about science and using the frame of emotional thinking or even creative thinking is not normally how I've been trained to do it. But I've been reading quite a lot around this idea of how we're going to tackle climate change and what would set us up best to do it. And it keeps to me coming back to this thing that we have to love it. We have to love nature in order to want to protect it and to want to feel that we need to hold on to it and and save it. And I was interested in particular in your views on how we can help children do that. And I know that you do some work in South Australia with an organisation that's about getting kids outdoors and fostering that love for nature and understanding of the natural world that makes us love it. Yeah, look, I'm going to take a leaf out of Shackleton's book because Shackleton was an emotionally intelligent leader of people. And he understood... Tell us who Shackleton was for he those was, of us who didn't pay attention. He was a heroic era polar explorer. So the heroic era was around 100 years ago, roughly on the eve of the First World War, just before the First World War, where Mawson, Shackleton, Scott, and Amundsen, and all of these heroic greats, all men in those days, obviously not the case today, but they did what they did back in that era. And um, Shackleton is universally felt to be the best leader of them all. And one of the main reasons is that people feel that he had real emotional intelligence. So he understood who his people were, what made them tick, and how to get them to want to pull as one, as part of a sort of team effort to achieve a particular goal. And I tend to feel that in the environment space, in the modern era, we need to really be more emotionally intelligent. If we want to get people to change behaviour, whoever that target audience might be, we have to talk to them and use imagery and evidence and sticks and carrots that are going to change the behaviour of that person using language that's going to be appropriate for them. You know, um, In the case of my work with children, it's, it's with nature play, it's about getting kids outdoors to experience nature. I hope they will grow up into adults who want to protect it, but in the short term, the benefits for parents are that the kids turn into more emotionally resilient, more capable, more resourceful young people, and the parents like that, and that's the kind of language you use to the parents to get the kids engaged because the parents have to bring the kids kind of along if you like so my goals are slightly different I want the kids to grow up to be all they can be but I want them also to grow up to be adults that can help us save the world but the motive for the parents I say is is one of developmental benefits for the kids and again 
you're always trying to find, not cynically, but you're trying to find what it is that's the touch point with the audience that's going to get... You know what I'm going to ask you, don't you? What kind of kid were you? Well, I mean, I, I spent a lot of time... See, my parents just said, oh, you know, off you go. And Where did you grow up? I grew up so in Malaysia you're... as a kid. And Malaysia, back in the 70s, when I was a small kid, I mean, was was an adventurous place. And, you know, the monkeys and wild dogs and snakes and, and a lot of jungle. And, and my parents would say, you know, I don't think they really knew what I was getting up to, but they said, off you go. And my brother is seven years younger than me, so I was sort of on my own for large amounts of it and I just enjoyed my own company and you know you do develop a resourcefulness and uh, my role with nature play is all about trying to encourage that in other other kids let them have unstructured play in the outdoors and it's amazing what skills they learn do you remember when you first encountered the idea of an explorer did you read a book or hear a thing and go yeah that well I had a thing called the explorers club when I was seven in oh, Malaysia, yeah, and I had a little book <laughs> what with, is it? when it had the name Explorers Club written on it. It had the names of the members, and I think it was just me. I, I, there might have been one other friend. <laughs> and we had rules and all sorts of stuff. I've always been an inquisitive kid, never really grown up. Were you looking at maps saying there? No, you know, I, I didn't really. I used to just go out to places and have experiences. And it's funny, as a kid, you tend to navigate your world based on the experiences you have rather than the geography of how stuff links together and it's funny you look back on maps of the places where you had your adventures when you were a child often they happen in very small right little little areas and, seem like the jungle but, but with just, just your like, garden they just seem like yeah that's <laughs> right you know it's um but no I'm, re- I'm really pleased with that the nature play role that i've got i'm very much a believer in kids getting out there you have kids of your own i do yeah two sons and do you, how old are they? They're nine and six. Where do you think that passion then came from for you to then, from being an adventurous kid, playing outside, fine, lots of kids do that. But you studied at university, so you're academic. I know you studied environmental science and also environmental law. But at what point did you, I mean, it's quite a leap to then become a polar explorer. What happened? Yeah. What was the pathway for you? I think the polar exploration bit was just a new frontier that I hadn't been to. And someone suggested it, actually, uh, 30 years ago. And I said, OK, that seems like an interesting thing When was your first try. trip? What did you do? Well, I mean, I didn't see really... I mean, I saw snow when I was a very small kid, but I grew up in the tropics, so I hadn't seen any. So this seemed like an exciting thing for me to do when I was in my 20s, you know, to go and pit myself against the Arctic. which is So were you I, a climber? Were you a hiker? What oh, I did you? everything. I did climbing. I went to a school in Singapore called the United World College and uh, a guy called Kurt Hahn started that. Kurt Hahn was an educator who who believed in kids learning by doing and uh, he started Gordonston and all of those sort of, you've seen the crown, you know, that's that's the school that up in Scotland. Oh God, all we the talked kids... about this on a podcast yeah, recently. Yeah, yeah. Um, that if anyone would like to see that episode of the Crown, I will share some details. But it's brutal stuff. Some of it can be, and um, or you think it's the making of you. Well, God. I think you know the, the the school I went to is all about social giving, leadership by doing, environmentalism way ahead of its time, and I think they were the principles that he really wanted. I think Gordonston's maybe a slightly extreme example where they try and break people and put them <laughs> exactly. in a mould whereas mine was more about allowing you to become what you want looking at the world through that prism of breaking men I'm not saying you but just the Gordonston story for instance which is all about making young men into tough characters how much of that stuff which seems like a pretty obvious cliche about the world of explorers and adventurers how much of that stuff runs through it how many women do you meet on your adventures how sexist is it 
Can you paint us a picture of what it's like today? Well, one of the best polar explorers around is Liv Arneson, woman, fantastic Norwegian explorer. Um, Vanessa O'Brien, very good friend of mine, she's the first American woman to climb K2, she's a bit of a legend in the field. Sylvia Earle with the oceans. There are many, many examples. Um, Jane Goodall. I mean, look, I wouldn't say it's sexist, and I don't really like the idea of creating a club where you sit around and pat yourself on the back. I'd rather be out there doing it than talking about doing it. It's a bit like leadership. You get people who cluster together talking about leadership in the abstract. I'd far rather just do things and have people say, you know what, I think you showed a bit of leadership there, you know, if, if they want, rather than sit around just talking about it in the abstract. Look, I, I, for my part, I don't see it as being at all sexist. Um, with the Shackleton expedition we did, we had six men in the boat, but it was just because the Shackleton family wanted it to be the same as the original, and actually men were a disadvantage. Uh, on well, that. because you sl- your, your boat was the size of what? A surf boat. Basically, it's a surf boat for six men living in it. Um, I mean, crazy. Seat, in the seated position just for two weeks on the Southern Ocean in freezing so sleeping in this, I mean, I think I saw you speak somewhere where you had said it was like the size of a big double bed. That's right, yeah, with a toilet as a, you know, the bucket um, held by the other people, you know, and it was, look, it was very challenging, yeah, seasickness inducing, small, cramped, maybe clo- clothing, not, clothing not, not, a, not a highlight. All either. I can think of is maybe there's not, this is really sexist, but whatever, I'm a woman, I'm going to say it, maybe there aren't more women in this kind of explorer land because we would rather be in Bali having a Mai Tai. <laughs> just sounds so hard, Jim. It was, uh, no comment, but um, <laughs> I know some pretty tough women, but it's... Uh, I know, I'm sorry. But, but, I speak for myself, not but, for my gender. But it was, yeah, it was very unpleasant. I mean... I think this is what I love about the 25-0 project is we've got the opportunity to make this all that it can be with everybody involved. And uh, Heidi Sand from Germany is Germany's top female high-altitude mountaineer. She mixes it with the best of the men. She's a cancer survivor. She's a wonderful person. She participated in 25-0 in uh, December 15. We did the COP announcement. Vanessa O'Brien. There are many great people involved, many great women involved. So coming back to that, the reason why I think it's so powerful, Tim, to be able to talk about climate change through your story is that it's a brilliant story. I mean, who wouldn't sit up and listen to I lived off lard and boiled sweets and maybe Mawson ate his colleague. But what you're really doing is bringing these very colourful tales to the table to say, look over here, listen, this is important stuff. And the important stuff is what's happening that's right. To yeah. the natural world because That's right. of global warming. That's right. I think. Um, is it working? Is this message that you're telling loud and clear, for instance, to politicians, for instance, to business people, do you think it's cutting through? Yes, I think it is. I think, you know, with Shackleton, there's so many leadership lessons, teamwork, problem solving, managing change, all the kind of lessons, resilience, all the, the buzz kind of corporate take homes from the expedition experience that you can talk about. And then when people are in the room to hear you talk about that, you then picture environmentalism by stealth on the back of that That's what sort I of do story. with rocks. And it's good, you see, <laughs> but you need, a, you need a, a kind of Trojan horse for your environmental messaging, if you like. And with 25-0, I, mean, I think people are just fascinated in the fact that there's any ice at all at the equator. And, um, and when you tell them there is, but look, bad news is it's going. And it's not about the glaciers at the equator, really. It's about what they're melting tells us about what we're doing to the planet. That gets people's attention. As an environmental scientist wearing that hat, what is it that we should be doing to tackle global warming? I know that there are lots of things we could be doing, but 
for you, what is it that we need to be focusing on? Is it renewables? Oh, look, I think renewables are a big part of it. I mean, the good news is now, because we've reached that tipping point with pricing of renewables, is that um, people don't even have to believe in climate change. They can just put solar on their roof and make a quid, you know, and in so doing, they happen to be saving the planet, you know. So it's not quite that simple. But we are at a point now where renewables are cheaper than the fossil fuel alternatives. So it's not like you have to put them in on moral grounds. You're doing it for money in your pocket. But it's not just down to the consumer. I mean, if governments aren't on board, then we have a system problem. Yeah, I mean, we've got a system problem for sure. I mean, the UN process said, okay, we mustn't exceed two degrees Celsius of warming. That's what Paris agreed. And um, we agreed a system where all the countries have put together a plan as to how they were going to do their bit of getting us to two degrees. And unfortunately, when you aggregate all of those plans, they don't get us to two degrees. They miss two degrees by one degree at best, maybe one and a half. And that's the amount by which we've already warmed the planet over the last 250 years of fossil fuel burning and land clearing. So there is a problem. What we do have at least is an agreement that can be ratcheted up over time, but I'm not seeing much ratcheting up going on. So I think, you know, the onus is on, yes, it's on governments, but it's also on individuals with their purchasing power, you know, where they invest their money in their superannuation schemes. You know, the purchasing decisions you make really determine what a lot of industry does because they they produce the stuff that we want to consume. So we have a lot of control with our credit cards. We know that we do, and I bang on a great deal about the fact that if we make more conscious decisions with the things that we buy, we can make a difference. We may not be able to halt global warming without partnerships with government and big business, mm. but we can choose to buy more responsible products. Yeah. And I want to talk just a little bit about Kathmandu. You're an ambassador for this brand? I'm an ambassador, a global ambassador for Kathmandu, yeah. Obviously, they make good stuff for outdoors pursuits, which is practical and useful to you. But what is the reason that you would ally yourself with a company like this? And can you talk to us a little bit about sustainability? Well, they do make fantastic stuff, but their sustainability profile is just the best I've come across. I mean, I'm aligned with them because of their commitment to try and green the whole of their supply chain and because they want to make a bigger difference beyond just the clothes they produce. Um, it's rare to meet a company that's so large as they are that is so committed to doing the right thing. It was actually started by two Kiwi blokes with a shop in Melbourne about 30, 30 years ago. 30 years ago, that's absolutely right. Last year was their 30th anniversary. Um, whether it's sustainable down, whether it's the cotton they use in the clothing, whether it's the recycling of the products you can hand in old Kathmandu garments and get a replacement... Um, a lot of the extra stuff they do over and above greening their supply chain in terms of projects they support. They're supporting 25-0, for example. We're going to East Africa to highlight via a couple of half-hour documentary films what's happening to the ice caps in Africa. We're raising money for projects doing something about climate change in those countries. So Kathmandu are just a wonderful partner to have. It's interesting to me, but perhaps it makes a lot of sense, that outdoor gear brands seem to be at the forefront I wasn't actually as aware of some of the stuff that Kathmandu is doing. Lots of fabulous stuff about the cotton production, for instance, where half of it is better cotton. I think 20% of it was organic cotton, and then they've got a smaller percent of recycled cotton, but they're really looking at different levels of the supply chain to be pioneers. But is my question to you, Tim, would be, I mean, is it because of this idea that the people who are wearing these clothes outside of fashion people who want to be into normcore <laughs> do you know what that is <laughs> yeah normcore i've heard about normcore where you know you've got hardcore clothing and go street and uh, it's like sort I, of 
It's yeah. like the coolness of dad style. Yeah, yeah, I, I can see it. You know, <laughs> bit of an anorak. Yeah. Sorry, I went on a tangent there, but it didn't no, 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 well. no. I, I get it. No, no. I mean, you know, just by way of a few stats about clothing. I mean, I think Kathmandu upcycle about four million plastic bottles a year into their clothing, which is amazing. So they, those plastic bottles then get recycled and turned into some of the clothing that they're doing, the fleeces and things like that. Well, fleeces have um, their own problems. As we know, although I did read a commitment on the website to say that everyone is working towards this new standard to try to look into what we're going to do about that. Microplastics. And I'll share a link to that. That's right. They're doing great work there. The down jackets, I mean, Kathmandu have got a wonderful jacket that I've helped them develop for the new XT range, which we'll be using in East Africa, which is um, waterproof. So your sweat doesn't go into the down, causing the feathers to clump together and for it to lose its ability to insulate you. And it's waterproof from the outside from we rain as well, like which that. is completely unique. You like being wrapped in an old blanket. That well, makes I mean, you, you know, shiver. I'm breaking with tradition here, moving away from my old blankets to uh, XT gear with Kathmandu, which is a little bit better for keeping you alive in the places I go. So I suppose my question was, I was asking if you think that because of the connection with nature, outdoor gear, brands are perhaps further ahead of the game because the people wearing the clothes are really people seeing nature and wanting to protect it. I think that's absolutely right. And I mean, but there's a lot of greenwash in the industry. I mean, I think there are a lot of people who produce products and they, a lot of their marketing is designed to look green, but very few companies walk the talk actually have the sustainable down and recycle the plastics and recycle the clothing and make all these commitments like Kathmandu does. That's really, I can't afford to have my reputation linked to a company that doesn't do the right thing. And I'm confident they do. Do you think that conscious consumerism can actually help us try to solve the climate question? It's definitely a part of it. Look, I don't think there are any silver bullets in any of this. I mean, Um, sort of shopping our way out of the problem seems a little bit... Look, uh, yeah, look, Australians get rid of six tonnes of clothing every 10 minutes, I think the figure is. Um, fashion that's just consumed and then discarded, some of them still with the labels in the clothes. I love that you um, know that. Yeah, um, best part of 3,000 litres of water to produce a T-shirt. I mean, you know, really, if we're going to solve problems of losing biodiversity or dealing with an issue like climate change we need to address every aspect of society we don't need to go back to the stone age but we do need to start trying to control the excesses of what we do for sure we've got to start fairly quickly and we do in all honesty have to make a step change but but it can be an exciting one Um, we don't need to live our life through the consumption of just one material thing after another we can live it based more on life experience and that's what we're all here to have. I wonder if I might finish up by asking you just on that what it's like to come back to society after you've been out there on your own on a mountain or been out there in the desert it must be strange look I do struggle with that I think superficially you come back and you're back in the room and it's no problem I mean, you know if you've got a beard you shave it and you have a shower and you put on different clothes and you're for all intents and purposes you look like you've reintegrated but you never really reach that place that you do when you're there out in nature experiencing things firsthand. That's what keeps me going back. Mm. And just fascinating. <laughs> Thank you so much for talking to us. I'm absolutely thrilled that you took the time I've to share it. this. Maybe I'll climb a mountain. You should. Oh, it's getting hard. My parents feel that I'm defending you. Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. To learn more about our guests and the issues that we've spoken about today, hop on over to my website, which is clairepress.com forward slash podcast. 
you can get in touch there and I really hope you will I'd love to hear from you and you can also find links to my social media and finally if you're enjoying the show please head over to iTunes and subscribe you know what they say first in best dressed subscribers are first to find out when there's a new episode and it also helps other people discover wardrobe crisis so I'd love your help with that because the more people who switch on to ethical fashion the better Music is by Montaigne. She recorded this special acoustic version of Because I Love You, which is from her Glorious Heights album, especially for Wardrobe Crisis. How good is that? Thank you, Montaigne. Because I love you, my plans